It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 255, or Hex FF, binary 1111111 for August 14th, 2011. Recorded August 11th. Remember the command line? Sometimes it's faster. Not long ago, I had a 4 gigabyte file that contained about 8 million lines, and 1.6 million of those lines were of interest to me. Fortunately, the file was on a Linux system, so a quick grep command gave me what I needed. I output the lines that grep found and immediately reduced my 4 gigabyte file to 100 megabytes. That's still a big file, but now those 1.6 million lines that I was interested in were sequestered. But what if I'd had to do this on a Windows machine, I wondered. Easy. In fact, there are several possible solutions. First of all, the Windows command line has both find and find str for find string, both of which perform a function very similar to that of grep. These commands produce exactly the same kind of output. The output is a list of lines that contain the text that I'm looking for. But the Unix or Linux shell, typically bash in many cases, has numerous commands that are missing in Windows. In many cases, the Windows PowerShell has commands similar to those offered by bash. Which solution you choose may depend on what you're most familiar with. Let's start with a little background. The first personal computers had only command lines. Graphical user interfaces were being investigated in the 1970s at the Palo Alto Research Center, and it was Park, not Apple, that introduced the first GUI-based operating system. The first commercial GUI did come from Apple. The third, and also copied from the work at Park, was Windows. Another graphical user interface called the Graphical Environment Manager, or GEM, was developed by a former Park employee and used by Ventura Publisher. With the advent of graphical interfaces, many thought the command line was dead, but some tasks are simply easier to perform from the command line. Even the Mac has one. In fact, the Mac has a very good command line. Most Windows computers have two. With Unix and Linux computers, you have a choice of several. Bash, as I mentioned, the born-again shell, is probably the most common. Born, by the way, is B-O-U-R-N-E. The born-again shell follows the born shell. Windows users probably know something about command.com from the old days through Windows 98. From Windows NT until now, the command line interface, or shell, has been called cmd.exe. The second shell available to Windows users is powershell.exe. Command and CMD have never been fully scriptable. Batch files allowed some programming, but Microsoft tried to improve things with Windows 98 by introducing cscript.exe. That made it possible for programmers to use JScript and VBScript that could interact with some applications. Documentation was bad, security was worse. So Microsoft began working on what would become the Windows PowerShell in 2002. It wasn't until 2006 that Microsoft had a release candidate. Initially an add-on product, Windows PowerShell is now incorporated into all versions of Windows. 
Windows 7 users can press the Windows key and type PowerShell and press Enter to open it. And it's on the Start menu, of course. PowerShell version 2 was released in 2009 on 64-bit systems. It is now available in both 32 and 64-bit versions. So you have multiple possibilities. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website screenshots of the three, and gee, they look an awful lot alike. PowerShell, SigWin, and CMD. More about SigWin in just a little bit. Those who are most familiar with Windows may prefer to use PowerShell, or for simple tasks, CMD. If you need a command that isn't available in one of the Windows shells, you might prefer to use bash commands. So you could set up your computer to dual boot Windows and Linux and switch between the two systems when you need to use bash. That seems troublesome. Or you could install SigWin, stay in Windows, and have access to bash commands. If you set up your computer to boot Windows and Linux, you can run native Linux applications when you boot to Linux. You might think that installing SigWin would allow you to run Linux applications under Windows. After all, SigWin looks a lot like Linux, but this is not the case. It is also not, as the SigWin site says, a way to magically make native Windows apps aware of Unix functionality. That just doesn't happen. But if you're familiar with Unix or Linux commands under Bash, you'll find that SigWin creates a very Unix-like environment and command line interface that runs under Microsoft Windows. SigWin was developed by Cygnus Solutions. When Red Hat acquired Cygnus, SigWin became free open source software under the GNU General Public License version 2. It's maintained by Red Hat, NetApp, and volunteers. Users may start Windows applications from SigWin in addition to using the commands that are familiar to Unix users. If you download the entire SigWin environment, you'll find that it's huge, 1.6 gigabytes. That's because it contains just about every package known to the Linux community. For example, you can install any or all of the following text editor, Techmatics, BVI, Ed, Emacs, Emacs X11, Emacs EL, GVim, HexEdit, Joe, Lix, MC, Mind, Nano, Nedit, Ted, Vim, XEdit, and Zmax. The same is true for all of the other package types, for example, Audio, Database, Games, Math, and Perl, just to name a few of them. They've all got lots of pieces you can install if you want to. The primary advantage SigWin brings is the ability for someone who is familiar with Unix Linux commands to use those commands on a Windows machine. If you'd like to give SigWin a try, you can follow a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. But if you'd like to stick with the Microsoft solution, consider this as an example of what you can do. I have mentioned using Sam Spade to investigate what's on a website without loading the website into a browser. The trouble with Sam Spade, though, is that it hasn't been updated since 1999, and the developer has no plans to update it. PowerShell makes it possible for you to examine a site without exposing your computer to any danger. You'll see the commands on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The sequence of commands loads the contents of the website into a file and then displays the file, just the text part of the file. doesn't display it as a website, so if there's anything nasty in there, it doesn't get executed. The key here is that PowerShell is, forgive me, a powerful shell. Besides being capable of executing all of the command.com and cmd.exe commands that you're familiar with, it exposes a vast array of net framework objects. This is not the end of this subject. 
You'll hear more about PowerShell in some future programs. We seem to be surprised and possibly even enraged when we learn that other nations are carrying out espionage. It's as if we reason that espionage is okay if we do it, but not okay if somebody else does it. Now, that's not to say that the shady rat exposed recently by McAfee Software doesn't concern me. It does concern me. What it doesn't do is surprise or enrage me. The rest of today's program, with the exception of short circuits, will dwell on this very topic. Let's start with a couple of definitions. RAT, R-A-T. That's an acronym for Remote Access Tool. So that's where RAT comes from in the caper that McAfee refers to as Shady RAT. And the bad guys in this operation are presumably in China, although McAfee's Dmitry Alperovich, the company's vice president of threat research, was very careful not to say either China or Chinese. Instead, Alperovich referred to a state actor. That, however, brought an immediate reaction from the Chinese government, the people not accused of spying, by way of the People's Daily, that's the newspaper operated by the Chinese Communist Party. Without quoting any government or party officials, the newspaper simply said, and I quote, linking China to Internet hacking attacks is irresponsible. Apparently, this was in response to media comments that suggested, as I have, that China is one of the more likely and more capable suspects. One of the more interesting aspects of this case is how long the spying has been going on. Nearly two and a half years at one Asian Olympic Committee and at a South Korean government agency. More than two years at a U.S. government agency, a California county government, and a U.S. satellite communications company. And more than a year at organizations ranging from a U.S. news organization's Hong Kong Bureau, several defense contractors, a U.S. real estate firm, and a construction company. There's a chart on the TechBiter Worldwide website provided by McAfee that'll give you all those details. Additionally, the types of organizations being spied on is fascinating, quirky even. Defense contractors, U.S. federal agencies, and the like make sense. So do think tanks and manufacturers, particularly if the intent is commercial espionage. But why a county government in California? Why a real estate firm? Why a German accounting firm? Why Denmark's satellite communications agency? McAfee's Dmitry Alperovich says for the past few years, especially since the public revelation of Operation Aurora, the targeted successful intrusion into Google and two dozen other companies, I've often been asked by our worldwide customers if they should worry about such sophisticated penetrations themselves, or if that's a concern only for government agencies, defense contractors, and possibly Google. My answer in almost all cases has been unequivocal. Absolutely. The words of Dmitry Alperovich from McAfee. Some of the recent high-profile intrusions have made this problem a top-of-mind issue for some people, but Alperovich says these types of exploitations have occurred relentlessly for at least half a decade, and he says the majority of the recent disclosures in the last six months or so have, in fact, been the result of relatively unsophisticated, opportunistic exploitations for the sake of notoriety by loosely organized political activist groups such as Anonymous and Lulzsec. 
So how did McAfee get all this information? Well, it's ironic and even amusing that McAfee learned so much about where the spies had been by gaining access to the intruder's command and control server. Says Alperovich, and I quote, We have collected logs that reveal the full extent of the victim population since mid-2006 when the log collection began. Note that the actual intrusion activity may have begun well before that time, but that's the earliest evidence we have for the start of the compromises. The compromises themselves were standard procedures for these types of targeted intrusions. A spear phishing email containing an exploit is sent to an individual with the right level of access at the company, and the exploit, when opened on an unpatched system, will trigger a download of the implant malware. That malware will execute and initiate a backdoor communication channel to the command and control web server and interpret the instructions encoded in the hidden comments embedded in the web page code. This will be quickly followed by live intruders jumping onto the infected machine and proceeding to quickly escalate privileges and move laterally within the organization to establish new persistent footholds by additional compromised machines running implant malware, as well as targeting for quick exfiltration of the key data that they came for. Alpertovich says McAfee identified 72 comprised parties. Many more were present in the logs, but Alperovich says there was insufficient information to accurately identify them. The organizations that were infiltrated are in 14 geographic locations. You'll see the breakdown by industry and the breakdown by geography on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The graphics are provided by McAfee. One point that Dmitry Alperovich makes crystal clear is the size of the threat, and I quote, I divide the entire set of Fortune Global 2000 firms into two categories, those that know they've been compromised and those that don't yet know. But nobody should be surprised or shocked or even outraged by these kinds of activities, nor should anyone be at all surprised to learn that the United States engages in some of the very same activities. In short circuits, is the United States perhaps becoming more puritanical? Are we afraid that Big Brother is watching? Well, the Wall Street Journal reports that direct TV subscribers are buying a lot less pornography these days. The same is true for Time Warner's porn channels. Despite what we might say, think, or like to believe, pornography has been, was, is, and probably always will be big business. So what's up with the drop? The Wall Street Journal tends to obfuscate a bit. I quote, It's hard to get a fix on just how much porn contributes to cable and satellite companies' bottom lines because the companies aren't transparent about it. But adult content has been a consistent source of profit because cable operators have leverage to command margins that can exceed 90% on rentals of generally interchangeable porn movies. So where have all the dollars gone? Apparently they've gone to the Internet. Or maybe they're just staying in consumers' wallets. There is, after all, no shortage of opportunities to view free porn on the Internet. Again, the Wall Street Journal. Adult TV's woes echo broader challenges that the television business is facing from Internet video. Distributors and TV networks, for instance, are talking about restricting next-day web streaming of TV shows, which some executives believe eats into ratings and makes it easier for television viewers to become cord cutters. If you're wondering just how big a deal this is, adult video on demand, 
also known as porn, brought in nearly $1 billion in revenue for cable companies in 2010, and that was down a bit. Now it's down a lot more, but not because we're watching it any less. The newspaper says Playboy Enterprises has seen its domestic TV revenue, which includes video-on-demand versions of Playboy TV and Spice, as well as traditional adult channels, fall significantly in recent years, from $75.8 million in 2007 to just $44.4 million in 2010, the company's last report before going private. If you're one of those people who live on the edge and has the latest beta version of Firefox 6, you may have found that PDF documents are unreadable because they're transparent. I suspect that part of the problem is the transparency function of Windows Vista and Windows 7, but most of the problem comes from an unexpected source. Because there wasn't a great hue and cry about unreadable PDFs under Firefox 6, I assumed that the problem was something specific to my computer. It wasn't a problem that I experienced at the office, where I'm still stuck with Windows XP, and it wasn't a problem that I've experienced on my notebook computer, where I use the default theme under Firefox. Okay, so I've just provided enough clues. You should now know what the problem is. What is the problem? Well, as it turns out, some themes have an adverse reaction with Firefox 6 beta under Windows 7. Other themes don't exhibit the problem. What I see with the Glowy Wine theme enabled is a transparent PDF. Now, I like the Glowy Wine theme, but not so much that I'm going to keep it. So I re-enabled another theme that I've used previously called Gato Sinza, and with that enabled, wow, my PDFs are back to being non-transparent. So the bottom line is this, if you encounter a problem with a new version of your browser, first consider which add-ons might be causing, or at least contributing to, the problem. A message from Microsoft promotes the new online Office 365 service and, at the bottom, boasts 99.9% uptime. Sounds impressive, doesn't it? But if your telephone service provider offered 99.9% uptime, you'd probably be on the phone night and day with the Public Utilities Commission. A service with 99.9% uptime will be unavailable approximately 31,536 seconds per year. Here's the math on that. 60 seconds per minute times 60 minutes per hour gives you 3,600. Times 24 hours per day comes out to 86,400. Times 365 days per non-leap year, so 31,536,000 seconds. And finally multiply that by 0 .001. 31,536. Now let's divide 60 to get the number of minutes, 525.6, and again by 60 to get the number of hours, 8.76. A missing about nine hours of service might not sound so bad, and it wouldn't be if the entire nine hours happened to occur overnight when you didn't need the service. But the fallacy of 99.9% .9 uptime promises is that the service could be unavailable for about a minute and a half every day and still meet the service level promise. The service may well be reliable, and possibly be reliable enough for general use. But these all-too-common claims of 99.9% .9 uptime 
They're just silly. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.